All right. Good morning. I'm Pastor Gillespie from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church and School, Sherman Center, Random Lake, Wisconsin. It's good to be with you this morning for the Congregation of Prayer, a guide for daily meditation and prayer around God's Word. It's Saturday, September 10th, 2022. We are going to consider tomorrow's Old Testament and Epistle readings, both of um, which have, I think, some pretty strong connections to the Gospel reading, one that's quite familiar to you, which is that parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, in order to understand the Good Samaritan, you kind of need to understand Samaria. So there's the uh, uh, the map, um, so you can see where Samaria is. It becomes the capital of Israel, right? Now, later on, at the time of Jesus, there's a region called Samaria, right, who are those Israelites <laughs> who later intermarry and they... Um, also go after false gods and reside there to the north of Israel becomes Galilee. All right. So you kind of see that on the map there and Judah. Remember that the kingdom was split in two um, under uh, the two sons of David. All right. So that's necessary for us to understand um, maybe some of the details, the background to the parable of the Good Samaritan, maybe some that you've heard, uh, maybe some you haven't really considered. So we'll try to. Uh, Break that down a little bit today, and then apply it, of course, tomorrow in the preaching. All right, so let's begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Memory verse for the week. These words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 through 7. Our psalm is Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. As I like to do, I'll share a little devotion on the psalm when we get to the end of the week, so that uh, maybe we can tie it all up nicely. So here's um, Father Reardon's commentary on this psalm. Among the psalms of ascent chanted by Israel's pilgrims as they climbed the final steps of Mount Zion on their pilgrimage to the temple— Psalm 126, that's Hebrew 127, is the only one ascribed to Solomon. 
Remember those Psalms of Ascent are those that uh, we can expect the pilgrims on Palm Sunday were singing out as they uh, went with Jesus into the holy city, right? Um, including Hosanna in the highest, right? Or Hosanna to the son of David, Hosanna in the highest. The latter, uh, the latter, yes, the psalm, latter being the Bible's uh, preeminent wise man, Solomon. This detail may serve to direct our attention to certain quote-unquote wisdom themes in the psalm. And in truth, these are readily discerned. Most particularly, there is the theme of the wise householder. All right, we've talked a little bit about that this week. A man did not normally make this pilgrimage to Jerusalem alone, but in the company of his family. Think Jesus going to the temple with his family in Luke chapter 2. Indeed, this customary pilgrimage was a significant way of giving a godly identity to a man's family. It was itself an exercise of edification. This word taken in its etymological sense of building or constructing an edifice. So to make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the feast day is uh, to edify one's family, to set up uh, and construct an edifice. An important promise or purpose of the pilgrimage was that of, quote, building the house. The latter term understood as a home or household, right? Not the physical building. Like everything else a family does together, the regular pilgrimage was an exercise in house building. In fact, this is a psalm about the proper maintenance of a household, and by extension, the city. A simple reading of, say, Proverbs will show that these preoccupations very much con- constitu- or constitute a wisdom theme, right? And we've talked about this. I've mentioned this to you extensively, um, that the attacks on the family are an attacks, um, are then thereby attacks on village, of course, attacks on the church, but also um, then attacks on the state. So as we see the rapid disillusion, um, disillusionment of people um, in themes of marriage between man and woman, um, childbearing and child rearing, uh, caring for one the, the children's, uh, well-being, rather than subjecting them to, uh, you know, the demonic ideologies of, of state and medical practice um, and government schools, you know, that that's intentional. There is a destruction of, quote-unquote, the city, if you like, or of civilization, right? And it, it is quite intentional. And it's also then an attack on God's Word, which actually institute these things, um, and actually, it, they, they exist from creation. They're the way God made us. All right. So here, um, the father is to be preoccupied as his family is going up to the holy city with building his home, right? And he does so how? With the word of God, of course. Now, the message of Psalm 126 is that all human effort directed towards such wise pursuits must be founded on a firm trust in God's grace and assistance. Thus, our psalm begins, unless the Lord should build the house, bayit, oikos, are the two words, bayit in Hebrew, oikos in Greek, in vain have the builders toiled, unless the Lord should guard the city, in vain did the guardian keep watch. In our present state, these tasks, construction and vigilance, are matters of great toil, of course, and frequently of frustration and sadness, because we are children of fallen Adam, who discovered his daily labor impeded by thistle and thorn. Thus our psalm addresses those, quote, who eat the bread of grief, end quote. That is to say, ourselves, descendants of the man to whom the Lord said, quote, In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. End quote. We are the heirs of that Eve to whom it is declared, quote, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception and pain you shall bring forth children. End quote. Genesis 3, 16. 
No matter how much discipline and industry we labor for our family's bread, the bread itself is always God's gift, a truth we acknowledge each day when we pray, give us this day our daily bread. Likewise, the wearisome toil of the apostles fishing all night to no avail is followed by the sudden and unexpected catch of the Lord's bidding. See Luke 5, uh, John 21. No human effort can hope for much apart from the graciousness of God. It was important for the fishermen apostles to learn this truth deeply, for it would have a special application to the ministry of the church. The labor of evangelism, for instance, depends entirely on the grace of God, for it is the Lord who day by day adds to our number such as being saved, citing Acts 2, verse 47. The apostle Paul thus described his ministry in Corinth, or the ministry in Corinth, quote, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase, end quote. Then, shifting his metaphor to one used in our psalm, he went on to assert, quote, For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's oikodome, his building, 1 Corinthians 3, 6, and 9. Then, our psalm, pushing the point still further, reflects on the irony that one of the most important blessings of human house building takes place in the bed. <laughs> it is in the bed, after all, in the context of rest and sleep that children are conceived. Thus, God's great gift, the gift of children, appears to have more to do with human rest than with human toil. So, after speaking of the loss of sleep involved in keeping a night vigil over the city, the psalm goes on to say that without the Lord's assistance, in vain do you wake early, rising up after resting, you that eat the bread of grief, when he gives sleep to those he loves. Behold, sons are the, inher- are the inheritance of the Lord, the reward of the fruit of the womb. Okay, now here's where he gets a little controversial. Not for me, but maybe for you. There is no room for a planned parenthood in this psalm. Conceived in the context of rest, children are purely the gift of God. They are the arrows of a man's quiver, says our psalm, waxing ever bolder in poetic image. They will be his stay and support when he sits and deliberates with his neighbors in the gate of that city over which the Lord maintains constant vigilance. This is what it means to construct a home. Right? It's to bear children and to raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and all by the Lord's giving. And of course, to labor and work um, for one's you know, land and property and home, the building of the home, the house. I think we've lost sight of it, um, and we, lost, in consequence, we've lost sight of the purpose of family, but also the purpose of God's family, the church, which is here actually to nurture and support the, your family. Um, although... You will hear tomorrow as we um, bless our teachers uh, who have resumed teaching again this year, uh, as is also said in their right of installation, is that their job is to come alongside um, pastor and parents in instructing uh, children in both the Word of God and in practical wisdom. So they're not there to build your house, they're there to assist you in building your home. Right, coming alongside the parents, but it's the parents' responsibility, given by God from from creation. All right, and of course, uh, as I said, it's the Lord who builds the house, and He does so by His Word and His gifts. Right, so the the centerpiece of a home that is built by the Lord, or at least under the Lord's blessing, is attendance to the divine service where God gives His Word and sacrament to you. All right, so third commandment, what is it? Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not despise preaching and his word, but hold it sacred and gladly hear and learn it. Fourth commandment, honor your father and your mother. What does this mean? 
We should fear and love God so that we do not despise or anger our parents and other authorities, but honor them, serve and obey them, love and cherish them. Okay, Old Testament reading for tomorrow uh, will help us understand maybe some of the, <laughs> well, for, it, for, for actually for God's people, the, the long memory they have of the treachery of their really brothers and sisters in Samaria, or from Samaria, uh, what was known as Israel, the northern kingdom. All right, and the children of Israel carried away captive of their brethren 200,000 women, sons, and daughters, and they also took away much spoil from them and brought the spoil to Samaria. All right, so again, pull up the map. They, they invaded the south, Judah, and they took 200,000 women, sons, and daughters, not us, not the men, um, they had been fought and died, presumably, and along with spoil, and brought them to Samaria, which you can see is a little star in the kingdom of Israel, the city there, all right? But a prophet of the Lord was there, whose name was Oded, and he went out before the army that came to Samaria and said to them, look, because the Lord God of your fathers was angry with Judah, he has delivered them into your hand. But you have killed them in a rage that reaches up to heaven. And now you propose to force the children of Judah and Jerusalem to be your male and female slaves. But you are not. All, but are you not also guilty before the Lord your God? Mm, good point. Now hear me, therefore, and return the captives whom you have taken captive from your brethren to the fierce, or for the fierce wrath of the Lord is upon you. Then some of the heads of the children of Ephraim, Azariah the son of Johanan, Berechiah the son of Meshillamoth, Jehezekiah the son of Shalom, and Amasa the son of Hadlai, stood up against those who came from the war and said to them, You shall not bring the captives here, for we, are, we already have offended the Lord. You intend to add to our sins and to our guilt, for our guilt is great, and there is fierce wrath against Israel. So the armed men left the captives and the spoil before the leaders and all the assembly. Then the men who were designated by name rose up and took the captives, and from the spoil they clothed all who were naked among them, dressed them and gave them sandals, gave them food and drink and anointed them, and they let all the feeble ones ride on donkeys. So they brought them to their brethren at Jericho, the city of palm trees, and then they returned to Samaria. All right, so again, going back to the map, um, Jericho, of course, is right at the northern part or southern part of Israel, right on the border before Judah. So they took them down to Jericho, right, and then left them over to travel back to their homes in Judah. Right, so they brought them to that border city, a city that didn't belong there either, which is one of the scandals of Israel, is that they have restored a city that God had said should never be rebuilt. Um, But King, I believe Ahaz did that um, at the cost of his two sons, or of two sons, yeah. All right, Um, let's see what else is going on here. Um, Notice that the Lord gave them victory over Judah, but he did not give them um, permission to take them captive or or hostage. Um, Well, there's a lot going on with warfare. Uh, We've been basically in a steady state state of war since since the first Iraq war, pretty much. (laughs) Um, And I think scandalously so. And today... Or excuse me, tomorrow being again the anniversary of 9/11, um, and there's there's so much we don't know. There's so much more that we know that isn't really doesn't fit within the party narrative. Um, frankly, that um, the terrorists who 
who um, flew the planes into the Twin Towers, um, and maybe a plane hit Pentagon, even though the evidence doesn't really support that. There was destruction at the Pentagon, but it's not doesn't appear to be from a plane. There's no plane wreckage there. Uh, there's all sorts of questions that we're not we haven't asked because we were so caught up in the, in the tragic death of three thousand people or so that day, plus many more cents um, from the um, from the air pollution right that was a result of that. Um, you know, and, and in particular, uh, a report came out two years ago uh, in March of 2020. So you remember there was something else happening pretty significant at that time. Uh, and so it distracted from another report that was put out by um, the University of Alaska, who researched um, the collapse of Building 7 at the World Trade Center, or many buildings there. Um, building 7, um, according to their assessment, was a controlled demolition. So it was actually, um, you know, it was never investigated uh, fully, and it uh, no plane hit it, and yet it was also destroyed on that day. Um, that's mighty suspicious, is it not? Um, plus, some of our national security state actually were the ones who changed the rules that allowed um, the visas for um, the terrorists to enter the country without background checks. So, I mean, there's all sorts of questions there. Um, and the reason is that, uh, is that warfare is... Uh, it can be used for good, according to the even under the Lord's command, as it was for Israel, um, to discipline Judah for their rebellion against God's word. Um, but without without God's command, war is always always used um, to well for the sinful motives of man's heart. Um, now, of course, sometimes in a, we have to be defensive, right? But but to engage in warfare um, is never well. Well, it's never a good thing. We'll just put it that way, right? And we should question that. Um, why Why are we at a steady state of war? Why are we involved um, in a war in Ukraine? What business do we have there? Uh, I know that's not a popular opinion. Um, I'm not saying uh, that Russia was at all justified in their actions either, right? Uh, yet at the same time, uh, why, are, why are we pouring in $100 billion you know, into that government and into that war? for a territory that doesn't belong to us and is not our responsibility directly. This has to do with something called being a neighbor, right? And we're going to hear about this tomorrow. What does it mean to be a good neighbor? Uh, and it means that we care for those before whom the Lord has, has placed into our care. Um, and one of the principles of that is locality, locality, that we care for those who are local to us, right? So to, um, to engage in a cause that's a half a world away when we have failed to, to care for those who are nearby us, um, the reason why that's so scandalous politically today is because it's scandalous um, morally and ethically, that we aren't caring um, to defend our borders uh, to the south, um, but also to care for those um, who are truly seeking uh, political um, you know, refugee status um, at, to be protected and saved from, or to, to be redeemed from uh, trafficking by um, the drug cartels of a drug and other kinds of cartels of, of Mexico, right? I mean, these questions are not easy to manage, but um, we should equip those who are n- most near or at least encourage those and not get in the way of those who are, are closest um, to these situations to, to care for them, right? Um, so one of the, I think, challenges of today's moral, political, ethical uh, context is that um, we are we are prone, as is always our nature, I think, um, to diffuse responsibility, right? So to say, well, the homeless are the government's problem, state, local, even, or national. 
rather than they're our problem because they are next to us, right? And they're not a problem so much as they are people whom the Lord has placed into um, our path to care for, right? So the best solution to the homeless is that those who live near them to care for them, right? We see this with also another uh, parable, the, that would be of the, um, oh, the rich man and Lazarus, right? Poor Lazarus was right at the rich man's gate. He had to pass him every day going, you know, to and from his home, except he was too busy partying, you say. So locality, um, diffusion of responsibility. It happens in any number of other ways, right? The parent um, doesn't teach the, the scriptures to their child, but instead says it's, well, it's the teacher's job or it's the pastor's job, rather than have the teacher and pastor come alongside and assist, but uh, where the parent um, is either unwilling or incapable, but usually incapable, right? Just are, are not well catechized themselves or don't feel competent to do so. I think that's naive and also, um, well, I think it's an excuse <laughs> because uh, if you don't know the scriptures, well, read it with your with your children and learn with them, right? There's no problem. The teacher also needs to learn. But again, we diffuse responsibility. Same thing with congregational life. Well, let's find out what... Uh, well, let's look to the district to come and bring us aid, or let's look to the synod to come and help us. And there's some things that district and synod can maybe do um, better than we can locally, um, larger scale institutions like uh, schools of learning, you know, universities, colleges and universities, uh, pastor and teacher training. We probably want to share that effort. It doesn't make sense for everybody to have a seminary. Um, but actually, the, the bulk of the training for pastors and teachers actually helping, happen in the congregation as our young people are are given opportunities to teach themselves or to teach the young um, as, uh, you know, I wouldn't be a pastor if I hadn't been catechized by uh, my previous pastors, both not only in the small catechism, but in God's word and, you know, had uh, model examples of what it means to preach and teach and provide care. All right. So again, don't diffuse responsibility is one of the lessons here, but also don't go outside of the Lord's word, which is the other uh, lesson here. So uh, you hear, you see at the end, um, and all these things are going to be echoed by Jesus in tomorrow's gospel, that uh, the Samaritans care for their, really what are blood brothers and sisters, or at least distant family um, in Judah, from Judah, which they had taken captive, and they restore them in the same way that Jesus um, confesses in the parable tomorrow, the, the good Samaritan. There he's good because he does what the Lord has given him to do cares for the needs of the man in the ditch um, with no consideration of his person or his background or um, maybe even how he got into that mess, uh, but simply, here's here's a person who's in need of my um, care, and the Lord has blessed me with, with the means to do so, and so I will. All right? And that's what happens here, too. And the Lord has to instruct us. He has to remind us um, that this is what love for neighbor looks like. All right? All right. So this story really sets the context for the gospel, uh, and you'll hear that tomorrow. Um, interestingly enough, I mean, Luther has almost no commentary to it. It's not cited in our Lutheran confessions. Um, so it's kind of, I'm glad that it's been appointed here for us um, in the last you know, 60, 50 or 60 years um, to, to be read on Sundays, on this Sunday. All right. And then tomorrow's epistle is from Galatians chapter 3. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, 
who is Christ. Um, by the way, when you hear this read tomorrow from English Standard Version, it's going to say offspring. Uh, I do not prefer offspring. I really do prefer seed. Um, but notice here, seed and seeds. The problem is even more evident with offspring, right? Because offspring can be either singular, singular or plural, right? So seed is singular. And to your seed, not referring to as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. There we go, verse 16. Verse 17, and this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that is, should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of the prom- of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So what purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promises were made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. So is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which, had, which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. All right, famous section from Paul, um, lovely section from Galatians, um, really essential to our understanding um, as Christians, in particular Lutherans, of the relationship of law and gospel, that is of promise and demand. Um, also, the, um, what was the other aspect of this? Or what it means to, um, to be saved by faith through grace alone, the central article um, of our faith, the chief article. All right. Um, so, breaking it down a little bit, and then we'll see how it's used elsewhere. The um, First, he says he's going to speak in terms of, of man, right? So, so we all enter into covenants. That is uh, two-way promises, right? You'll do, if you do this, I'll do this, right? Um, but notice, once it's confirmed, you can't add or take away from it, right? Because that's actually a way of breaking the promises, making further demands, or setting aside the demands, or not fulfilling your end of the bargain, right? So, uh, that's true of, of covenants. Now, again, covenants are two-way usually. Um, testaments are usually one-way. Um, not always, but but generally speaking, if you make a testament, like in your last will and testament, it's just a promise. So, when uh, we, in particular as Lutherans, when we speak of promises, we don't use the language of covenant, um, just because grammatically in English, it tends to mean two-way. Um, but here, Paul it does have in mind a one-way covenant, meaning a promise, all right? So, um, to Abraham and his seed, his offspring, were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. So, when um, God says to Abraham, you know, by your offspring, all the, um, all, what does he say about his offspring? Something about being named, right? But also that your offspring shall be as numerous as the sand of the seashore and the, uh, um, the stars of heaven, Right? Um, he's talking about the Holy Christian Church, uh, which is all those believers who have been joined to Christ through baptism, right? So, there is only one offspring, it's Christ, and all those who have been joined to him, right? Um, so, that was the promise given to Abraham. And then Paul does something very curious, which I think is helpful. He recognizes that in the gradual unfolding of God's um, revelation in, in the Old Testament scriptures, um, that some things are revealed later that maybe weren't as articulate before, but they're revealed later um, for different purposes. All right, so now we understand who the offspring of Abraham is, Jesus, because we have the New Testament, right? 
Um, but in terms of the law, the people of God, as they entered into uh, into wickedness, as they forgot um, what God had originally said by way of, um, you know, his speaking to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, by way of speaking to Adam, right, and Adam to his sons, uh, Cain and Abel, then Seth, and their and grandsons and so forth, that the people forgot. And so then God had to come along and uh, in, in a new revelation, but really a revelation of what was already true, speak the word of the law again to them. That is, here are the, as I said on in my Wednesday evening sermon, you know, here are the parameters or the framework of what it means to live as human beings, to live as God's creatures in the world, right? And we call those the Ten Commands or the Ten Words, right? So when he talks about law here, um, he is specifically referring to the law given by Moses on uh, Mount Sinai, 400 or so years after the promise was given to Abraham, all right? Um, and it could mean the whole comprehensive law, the the Levitical law, um, as it's also echoed in Deuteronomy, you know, the uh, second law, which is what that means, okay? Um, but it was given later, and it doesn't annul the promise that came before. The promise holds true. The law was given for a different purpose, not to annul the promise, but rather um, for a different purpose, right? Which he tells us. Not for inheritance. Um, that was promised to Abraham by promise. So, he asks, what purpose does the law serve? It was given because of sin, transgressions, right? The people were living in rejection um, to God, to his will, and so then he articulates for him his will by way of his word, namely the law given to Moses on Sinai, right? And it's there, um, he, he calls it a number of things in, in Galatians, but he calls it a pedagogue or a tutor or um, a disciplinarian, you might even say, all right? So, it's there um, ultimately to prevent the extermination of the household of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Judah for the sake of the promise made to them that uh, of their offspring, namely the Christ, would salvation come. All right. Um, notice that it was the law was given by way of an, of angels, that is messengers of God, uh, the messenger of God, I would say, even of Christ, uh, by the hand of a mediator. There, I think it's referring to Moses. All right. Um, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Of course not. Right. The law does not give you the righteousness that is demanded. It shows you what that righteousness is, but it cannot. This essential point. And this is repeated frequently throughout the Lutheran confessions. The law cannot accomplish that which it demands. It's not given to accomplish what it demands. It's only given, it's actually given, according to Paul here, and quite explicitly, it's given to show you how you do not live as God would have you live. You already have, as he says in Romans uh, chapter 1, that you already have that law written on your hearts. He didn't need to speak it by way of Moses. You, You knew not to murder, not to steal, not to commit... Uh, adultery, not to bear false witness, not to covet um, that which is not yours, whether uh, institutionally or from, um, you know, your neighbor. You also knew um, to listen to God's word, right, and to call upon God's name in times of need and in prayer and thanksgiving, and to have no other gods. You knew that. It's in your heart. But because you live in rebellion against that, God speaks to you a word that, that exposes it, and it does so to bring you, this is where it gets real um, dicey for people. They just, they just don't like to listen. Hear this. Verse 22, scripture, namely of the law, has confined all under sin, that all the world, the mouths of all the world would be stopped. 
right? Shut up, right? This is what God wants. Stop claiming that you have righteousness in yourself, that you are without sin, that you have done well, that you deserve anything from God. That's the purpose of the law, to shut your mouths, um, but for the sake of the promise, right? That the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. That you would cry out, Lord, have mercy upon me. I'm a poor, miserable sinner. I deserve nothing but wrath and punishment, right? And that... that, that position of humility is also then a position of receptiveness. Who is going to save me from this body of death, Paul says? Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Hmm? So that the gospel may be, uh, as CFW Walther reminds us, be even more sweet, even more sweet. So we, we preach the law in its full sternness that the gospel would resound in all, in its, all its sweetness. Um, I said it might be, we might want to look at where it's used elsewhere. We don't have to spend a lot of time on this. Um, we talked quite a bit already about it. Um, let's see. So you could look at uh, the Apology to the Augsburg Confession, Article 4 or Article 12. I mean, it's all over the place. Um, it's used. I'm trying to think if there's anywhere else that we should look at. How about in regards to human traditions? All right. So it's actually used there. Um, and I think this maybe is a, a different use than the one we we're just talking about, but may be helpful. All right. So human traditions comes under Article 15 of the Augsburg Confession. Um, And here's how he starts. This is uh, Philip Melanchthon, of course. We have already discussed at length that people are justified through faith when they believe that they have a reconciled God, not because of our works, but freely for Christ's sake. It is certain that this is the doctrine of the gospel because Paul clearly teaches in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, the doros, right, of God, not a result of works. Now, these men say that people merit the forgiveness of sins by by these human celebrations, these men meaning the Roman church. What else is this than to appoint another justifier, a mediator other than Christ? Right? Saying that you merit forgiveness of sins by human celebrations is to appoint someone other than Christ to justify. Hmm. So you can see where it's going to get to Paul's use here in Galatians 3. Paul says in Galatians 5, you have severed from Christ you who would be justified by the law. This means if you hold that by obeying the law, either the law of God or even human laws, right, you merit righteousness before God, Christ then will benefit you nothing. Why do they need Christ? who hold that they are righteous by their obeying of the law. You know, if being a Christian is about doing the right things, then why do you need Jesus? Oh, Jesus is an example. Well, why do you need Jesus as an example? The Buddha would be just as good an example, Siddhartha Gautama, right? Or um, or even, you know, noble Hindu like uh, Gandhi or, uh, or a pious uh, Roman saint, right? Um, like Mother Teresa. Hmm? Why would you need Jesus? What makes him unique? Well, you know, he's, he's better than the rest. Okay, fine. But did he actually die for your sins? Does he alone take them away? That's the point here, right? God has presented Christ with a promise that because of this mediator, Christ, and not because of our righteousness, he wishes to be gracious to us. But these men hold that God is reconciled and gracious because of the traditions, not because of Christ. Therefore, they take the honor of mediator away from Christ. They actually dishonor Jesus by putting their trust in their works. Namely, even ceremonial acts, even churchy things. Very important. So far as this matter is concerned, there is not any difference between our traditions and Moses' ceremonies. 
Paul condemns Moses' ceremonies, Galatians 3, just as he condemns traditions, because they are condemned them in terms of being meritorious of salvation or of righteousness, right? Because they were regarded as works that merit righteousness before God. There you go. So the office of Christ and the righteousness of faith were clouded over. With the law and traditions removed, he argues that the forgiveness of sins has been promised not because of our works, but freely because of Christ, if only we receive it through faith. For the promise is not received except through faith. Since we receive the forgiveness of sins through faith, since we have a merciful God for Christ's sake by faith, it is an error and a sin to declare that we merit the forgiveness of sins because of these observances, again, traditional observances. If anyone should say that we do not merit the forgiveness of sins, but that those who have already been justified by these traditions merit grace, Paul again replies, Christ is then a servant to sin, Galatians 2.17. The same would be true if we were to hold that after justification, we were not counted righteous for Christ's sake, but we should first, by other observances, merit that we are counted righteous. Right? So that's another error that creeps in, namely that um, some would hold that we are saved by grace through faith alone, but then by our works, we have to actually stay. Right. So, so you're baptized and it's purely passive. God brings you in. He makes you his child. He forgives you your sins. But now it's on you from there on out to stay in that forgiveness of sins by your own works, by your own effort, even by traditions, even by um, godly services, right? Or is it actually not God who works through these things when they're done faithfully, right? To bring forgiveness of sins to you over and over, to restore you over and over to faithfulness, not by your works, but by his gift, see? Um, Likewise, quote, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. That's from our epistle. We should not add to God's covenant, or testament if you prefer, for God's promise, promises that he will be merciful to us for Christ's sake. For God promises that he will be merciful to us for Christ's sake, not for our own, for his sake. Nor should we add that we must first get such merit in order to be regarded as accepted and righteous through these observances. All right. So, as you know, I'm very liturgical, very traditional in that too. I receive a, a liturgical tradition uh, that's been handed over to us. Um, but I am also cautious not to do things, even if they've been handed over to me, that are contrary to the gospel and that lead one away from um, confessing faith in Christ, but rather point to their own works. All right. Uh, even, you know, unfortunately, that, that happens even with our current materials in some places, I think. Right. And so uh, it's omitted. If our traditions that we receive no longer confess, um, Christ and Christ is a gift, and His righteousness for the forgiveness of sin, gives us forgiveness of sins. Then they need to be omitted and changed, right? So we're not traditional for traditional sake, tradition sake. Um, we're traditional only insofar as those traditions, those ceremonies, those rites give us Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, right? And also, actually, um, boldly confess the law and and hold hold us captive, um, or show that our captivity. Um, to our own sin, right, in order to deliver the gospel. So, our, like our confession of sins does that. All right. So, again, um, now how is this connected to tomorrow? Well, the promise, I suppose, the promise made to Abraham is long before um, King David and then bef- before the, the division of the nation. Um, Abraham himself was not a Jew. There was no such thing <laughs> at this point. Abraham is from, Abram's from uh, Ur of the Chaldeans, right? 
from that that ancient city um later would be known as babylon so even abraham himself is brought into the household of god he actually is then constitutes um, the household of god um this happens frequently right is that as much as god preserves a particular um, nation for the sake of the promise that that the son of david namely jesus would be delivered his perp- his guiding purpose throughout from the beginning there all the way through to the end is that all nations would be drawn to jesus uh, for the forgiveness of sins so there's always a place for the sojourner um, for the um what do they call it proselyte to the convert etc uh, and often by marriage um and and by other means too by conquering even uh, i think uh we'd mentioned this yesterday uh with tamar right no not tamar excuse me um rahab right who was in jericho and was not uh, uh hebrew but then is brought into even jesus own family tree his lineage it's always been the purpose always been the goal all right let's sing our hymn for the week oh bless this house What a lovely hymn, huh? And uh, we haven't really talked much about it. I mean, maybe what's going on with it. I'll give you a little background, though. So uh, this is written by... Who wrote the background? 
Uh, oh, Robert Smith, the librarian at uh, Fort Wayne. Uh, Christoph Karl Ludwig von Feil was a Renaissance man, 1712 to 1784. The son of a German civil servant, he studied law at Halle and Tübingen, where he, be- he came under the influence of German pietism. On the 10th Sunday after Trinity in 1730, Christoph experienced his Christian awakening, quote-unquote, after which he wrote and published 950 hymns. Good night. In 1732, he became a civil servant in the Duchy of Württemberg, serving in various posts until differences with government policies led him to retire to his own estate in 1763, 30 or so years later. Shortly thereafter, he entered the service of Frederick the Great of Prussia, already a baron, uh, Freiherr, he was additionally created a baron of the Holy Roman Empire, a Reichsfreiherr, in 1767. Oh, bless the house, whate'er befall, first appeared in files, Evangelisches Gesangbuch Bestehend in Salmon and Lobes, Lobes Gesangen und Geistliche Neuen Liedern in 1782. There you go. Just two years before his death. This book collected hymns based upon his experiences as a, quote, awakened Christian, that's a pietist term, inspired by his devotional life and practice of, quote, faith, hope, and love, which is in Christ Jesus. Vol Einem Haus die Jesu Christ was one of two hymns inspired by the historic gospel for the first Sunday after Epiphany, the story of the boy Jesus in the temple, Luke 2.41, which we talked about today. The legend above the text says in German, Quote, a pretty picture of a house that serves the Lord about the parents of Jesus. End quote. The English text is, modif- is modified from a version by the great English translator Catherine Winkworth, 1872, or 27 to 78. In order to provide a hymn suitable for congregation sit- singing, she merged the concepts of stanza three and four and omitted stanza six of Files text. The hymn entered American Lutheran hymnody with the Ohio Synod's Evangelical Lutheran Hymnal of 1880. For the most part, it retains Winkworth's translation, omitting her third and fourth stanzas, and adding as a third stanza, Files sixth. The German hymnals of the Missouri Synod did not contain this hymn. It entered the Synod with the um, ELHBT, the Evangelical Lutheran Hymn Book um, something. 1912, which used the Ohio Synod's version. TLH, 1941, included it, but altered the final line. The hymn was altered again in Lutheran Book of Worship, 1978, and this version was also used in Lutheran Worship, 1982. The Wisconsin Synod's uh, Christian Worship, 1993, made several significant changes to the text. It replaced the final two lines in the first stanza with a home that is not wholly his, how sad and poor and dark it is. In the final stanza, it replaced covenant, which alludes to Joshua 24, 15, with the more familiar promise. We talked about covenant and promise, right? It restored stanza two, line two, to Winkworth's, and all within have set their mind. LSB adopted this version of the hymn, but altered this, this line to, and all in hope and love abound. The Evangelical Lutheran Church of America did not include this hymn in its hymnal of 2006. All right. So that gives you a little bit of a, of its pedigree, where it comes from. All right. So, uh, let's see any, I don't think we have any commemorations today. Nope. All right. And we've been praying on the catechism earlier. So let's continue with the collect for the week. Almighty and merciful God, by your gift alone, your faithful people render true and laudable service. Help us steadfastly to live in this life according to your promises and finally attain your heavenly glory. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, 
one God, now and forever. Amen. We pray this day for faithfulness to the end, for the renewal of those who are withering in the faith or have fallen away, for pastors as they prepare to administer Christ's holy gifts, and for receptive hearts and minds on the Lord's day. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Pray in Thanksgiving today with Gus and Franklin. Gus is in the chat. Um, we celebrate their birthday. We also pray for the households of our church, that of Chelsea, Chris, Renata, Katrina, Garrett, and Brandon. We continue to give thanks to God for the confirmation of Matthew and reception of Maureen into our membership. We pray for our newly enrolled catechumens in our day school and after school. Pray for those ill receiving treatment or recovering, especially Marcella, Joe, Kelsey, Dan, Brad, Ron, Betty, and Heidi. Pray for our homebound Bev, Willis, Ed, Mickey, Paul, and Pauline. Pray for our mission of the month, Anchor of Hope, and we pray to the Lord in intercession for victory over the world. For all this, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger. And I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings and life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul, and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. All right. It's been a joy to have you with us here today for the Congregation of Prayer, Guide for Daily Meditation and Prayer Around God's Word. Come to you each morning at about 9 o'clock, right? Uh, except for tomorrow. Tomorrow we have divine service, so join us at 9.30. It'll be a festive day uh, where we will, of course, receive our teachers uh, again or bless them for their service here. Uh, also, we will have, let's see, uh, actually, a presentation after divine service of our certificate of accreditation from NLSA. So that's a great joy to us. And then we'll take time to continue to celebrate together our presence and the blessings of the Lord in our annual church picnic, which will be over at church, or excuse me, at uh, in the gym. Uh, I think looking at the weather now, uh, that's probably a good thing that we're indoors. All right. Um, so we can have food and fellowship time together, um, games, other kinds of activities. Um, so look forward to that. Um, and if you're, if at all possible, you know, join us for that. Um, there's, uh, well, we're a blessing to each other and it's, it's good for us to encourage one another. And it's hard to do that when we're not actually together um, around God's word first, divine service, and around his gifts of sacrament. Um, and then, in, in, in fellowship and food um, later on. All right. So if you're, if you're able to come, please, I uh, really appreciate it. I think you would be blessed by it too. All right. So with that, um, I'll bid you a fond farewell and adieu, and we'll see you tomorrow um, for the Lord's Word and Supper. We thank you for listening to this podcast from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church Sermon Center in Random Lake, Wisconsin. If this podcast is of benefit to you, please consider supporting the work of St. John by visiting stjohnrandomlake.org, that's stjohnrandomlake.org, slash support, and give today.